Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 40, being recorded on Monday, August 8th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and this episode is being sponsored by the NRF National Retail Federation. Scott and I are going to be live podcasting from the Shop.org Digital Summit this year, which is in Dallas, Texas, on uh, September 26th through the 28th. Uh, in fact, if you'd like to attend, we have a special discount code for our listeners. So that code is Jason Ampersand Scott. That's J-A-S-O-N, the and sign, and S-C-O-T. Don't forget that uh, Scott's parents were very unique and clever with a single T, Scott. So Jason and Scott is all you need to get a 10% discount on your full conference fee. Uh, and uh, hopefully you'll use that code, attend the show, and visit us for a live podcast on the floor, uh, live from the trade show uh, floor at NRF. So visit our show notes or go directly to retaildigitalsummit.nrf.com to register and use that promo code. And now, as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, congrats on the big 4-0. Yeah, this is uh, the second time I've had to go through it, and this time I'm having less of a midlife crisis. Yeah, me too. But I do think this could be a good reason for you to either, um, you know, buy a sports car or do something crazy. So have at it. I will take that under advisement and see if I can get it approved by the finance committee here in the Goldberg household. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) One thing um, that I think we can announce about shop.org that we're excited about is we're going to have some giveaways. So I don't want to spoil the fun, but we're going to have some exciting swag for the Jason and Scott show. So another awesome reason, uh, other than seeing this amazing show uh, live, is to come and get some swag. Exactly. So you won't be able. You won't just have to tell your grandkids that you saw one of the first fifty episodes of the Jason and Scott show. You'll actually have concrete evidence that you were there at the beginning of the phenomenon. Yeah, and for a small signing fee of $200 each, we will even sign some swag and things of that nature. So uh, just kidding on that part. But we, we do look forward to seeing everyone at the show. I feel like you got to be careful. You could get yourself kicked out of the Podcasting Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to be very careful with the sponsorships. Well, thanks for listening in. It's been a really couple of big weeks of news in the world of e-commerce. So we wanted to use this episode, take a little bit of break from our interview series and do a deep dive into two specific news items, both of them related to mergers and acquisitions. First, we wanted to talk about the Unilever acquisition of Dollar Shave Club. And then the big news that came out today when we're recording this podcast, but I'm sure it'll still be in the news uh, for weeks, if not months later, is the big acquisition of Jet.com by Walmart. Um, Jason, you want to tell us a little bit about the Dollar Shave Club? Yeah, but before we jump right in, I would like to take our readers back uh, a little bit 
in our podcast history to episode eight, which was actually our predictions of the future episode. And loyal listeners will all know that one of my predictions was that consumer packaged good companies and grocery retailers would be making a major moves and in investment into the direct-to-consumer e-commerce space. So I'd like you to bear that in mind. Um, as we talk today about uh, a major consumer packaged good company making a billion dollar investment in direct to consumer e commerce. Yeah, I have to admit that was a good call. Um, I think you made six predictions and I made three or four. So you've got 18% of your predictions came true. There you go. But the year is still young. I still have optimism. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got, still got a long way to go. I knew if I couldn't beat you in quality, I would beat you in quantity. Absolutely. Yeah. So for those that are not familiar with Dollar Shave Club, the company was founded by a gentleman named uh, Mark Dubin with a partner back in early 2011. And it was a bootstrap company that I, I think he literally started out of his garage. And the notion was that buying razors was a pain in the neck, that you had to go to the store, that the razors were usually locked inside of a loss prevention case and you had to find someone to unlock them and sell them to you and that, you know, most men spent too much money on razors and therefore didn't change their razor as frequently as, as they might or should. And so he wanted to start this online subscription service for razor blades. Uh, he raised a little bit of money and about six months after he started the company, they shot a video that they had produced on the cheap for like $4,500 and uploaded the video to YouTube. And the the video became the very definition of going viral. Uh, it got immediately, it got millions of views. Now I think it's in the like 30 or 40 million views. I'll have to check on that um, for the listeners. But it really drove the success of the company and got the company really well known. And uh, very quickly in uh, less than three years, this Startup from a garage became the second largest razor retailer in the United States behind or razor manufacturer in the United States behind Gillette. So they they literally passed Schlick, one of the traditional uh, razor companies that have been around forever in three years, largely using Internet growth hacking techniques in these these viral videos. So really interesting company. And one of the e-commerce companies that, that we've talked about on previous shows as a vertically integrated brand um, that both is primarily uh, manufacturing the product and offering it to the consumer and selling it through their own channels. Got it. It doesn't, um, Andy at Bonobos call them digitally native vertical brands. Isn't that kind of when we were at shop talk, I remember him coining that phrase and, and, kind of has stuck. I've heard other people using it now. Exactly. And, and these guys, uh, uh, Shave club would be a perfect, uh, example of Andy's definition of, of the digitally native vertically integrated brands. Cool. And, um, so just, I'll give a little overview of the deal. So July 19th, Unilever, uh, who, uh, you probably know more about than I do, but one of the larger CPG, I think they're out of the UK. So, you know, but kind of the UK equivalent of Procter and Gamble, kind of a company, uh, announced they're acquiring Dollar Shave Club for a billion dollars in cash. Uh, now Dollar Shave Club's private, so they don't put their revenues out there, but I've read several articles that say they did 150 million in 2015 and they were growing well north of e-commerce growth rates. So if we put that at kind of 20 or 30%, that would put them on track to do 
200 million in 2016. Uh, I guess we'll never know because they've been acquired, but I'm sure the run rate was probably approaching that. So, so that gets you to kind of a 5x revenue multiple on that deal, which, which is, um, which is pretty interesting because traditional retail e-commerce businesses, if you look at like Zappos when they were acquired, it was a dollar for dollar. So they were doing a billion and got acquired for a billion. Woot, I think, was in the similar kind of vein. A lot of the e-commerce acquisitions have been almost dollar for dollar revenue kind of multiples. So, so this is, you know, Unilever saw something there that was worth paying up for. Um, certainly there's growth. Uh, you're getting more little apples and oranges comparing it to those retailers because you are getting effectively a manufacturer, a direct to consumer brand, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, one of the unique things about the model is that it is subscription based. And so, uh, it skews, you know, wildly towards recurring revenue, which is, of course, appealing to any investor or business owner. Yeah. And did Unilever have anything in the shaving category? I, I know they do axe and they probably had some aftershave, but did they do anything with razors? They, uh, to my knowledge, they do not have blades. They do have a bunch of skincare b- brands. Um, they do have a bunch of men's healthcare brands. Uh, they're going to be best known for brands like Dove, uh, I think, is one of their biggest brands. They have some food brands like Hellman's uh, Mustard or uh, Mayonnaise, rather, or Best Foods Mayonnaise, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, but I don't think they were core in razors. But they, uh, they prior to this acquisition, they they were a very typical they were in a very typical situation for CPG companies as far as digital e-commerce. Um they were, you know, all their products were being sold through their wholesale partners online channels, so they're being sold in Walmart, they're being sold on Amazon, they're be, being sold on Jet, um and they're, you know, we're all struggling to improve uh how their digital shelf manifests themselves and and what their visibility looked like. They're competing against non-traditional brands that, you know, were doing well in those digital channels. And they were just starting to toe dip in direct-to-consumer. And so they had some small direct-to-consumer uh, efforts for a few of the brands where they felt like there was a uh, a particularly strong play for e-commerce, uh, but, but no meaningful revenue in terms of direct-to-consumer. And so, you know, you'd certainly look at this acquisition and say, hey, Unilever got a a business that was, uh, you know, arguably on the verge of being profitable, that, that, uh, had a nice string of growth, but also clearly part of this strategy was, uh, aqua hire to bring more digitally, uh, savvy folks and, and, uh, direct to consumer savvy folks into the Unilever family, um, which I think is a, a, a really smart move when we think about what the future of, of marketing is going to look like for these brands. Yeah, do you think this causes a big rush to acquire the other digitally native vertical brands? Like you've got Bonobos and Stitch Fix, and you know the uh, what's the Birchbox uh, Bonobos? I think I mentioned. You know, all, there's there's probably ten of these guys now that have built pretty sizable businesses. Do you think there's going to be kind of a, a musical chairs to see who who is going to sit in a chair? Um, well, so I, I don't know that there, this is going to drive a rush. Uh, this certainly breaks the ice. Like there, there hadn't been an, uh, an e-commerce exit in a little while. And the only recent e-commerce exits had been these daily deal sites. And so seeing another format of e-commerce sell, uh, you know, certainly helps, uh, 
lubricate the conversations for all of the the other e-commerce companies out there. All the ones you mentioned, you know, they each have unique nuances that are both, you know, appealing or challenges depending on on who the acquirer might be. But uh, one you didn't mention is Harry's, which is another uh, vertically integrated brand in the razor space. Um, and so Harry's was sort of a fast second mover after Dollar Shave Club. That one of their founders is a former founder of Warby Parker. Um, and so they, they have the one for one model when, you know, you buy a razor, they donate a razor to someone that can't afford it. Um, so there's a, a philanthropy component to it. And uniquely, whereas Dollar Shave Club went out and sourced razor blades from a factory and branded them and sold them. Harry's actually went out and bought a razor factory in Germany and started manufacturing their own blades. And they would make the argument that they have a bunch of product advantage as a, uh, as a result of owning the entire design process, whereas Dollar Shave Club was really sourcing sourcing razor blades. So certainly, I think that that like relatively generous valuation that Unilever paid for Dollar Shave Club is going to go a long way to helping set a valuation for Harry's. And to a lesser extent, you know, it probably makes it easier for, for some of the other uh, uh, digitally native vertical brands to, to start having, having acquisition conversations. And I guess the one other note I would throw out there is I have seen some recent news that Harry's is starting to secure some retail distribution for their product. So, so they started out selling purely direct online, exactly like Dar Shave Club, um, but I think I read that Target is going to start to carry the Harry's brand in store as well. Hmm. And does Harry's, I, I get the one-for-one, one. do they have a subscription model too, or is it just more of the Tom's one-for-one? One? No, I think they do. I think it's their goal is a subscription model. I, I do think they will sell one-off products, or or maybe they call it a trial, um, whereas uh uh, Dar Shave Club will only let you get their products through a subscription. So you could certainly subscribe and cancel. And, you know, they're, I think they're, you know, there was, they weren't locking you into anything. Um, but, but Harry's was willing, is willing to sell products at a one off, whereas Dar Shave Club was, was pushing a little harder to get everyone to sign up for the subscription. Got it. Cool. One, one question I always see when you have these kind of, you know, I don't know how old Unilever is, but they've got to be 100 years old, 150 years old, you could imagine. Um, so you have these kind of big corporations like that, and then they acquire this kind of fast-moving brand that breaks all the rules with, you know, F-bombs and the videos and that kind of stuff. You have to kind of wonder, can a corporate entity like that really kind of consume and integrate the DNA of a small startup like that? Do you, do you think they'll be able to do that? Uh, so I do have some firsthand experience with Unilever. They, they are a Razorfish client, and so a number of the brands work with us. And I would say uh, that they, there won't be a big cultural fit challenge in terms of of uh, the sort of agileness and brashness. I mean, I think I think uh, Michael Dubin, a he's not quite as edgy as, as uh, in person. He's a pretty solid. Uh, citizen that was a little edgy in the video. Um, so I, I don't think he's likely to make anyone uncomfortable. And I think, you know, uh, all these brands have acquired talent wherever they can. And I, I think there are a bunch of people that are philosophically compatible with Michael that are already working on the digital team at Unilever. So I wouldn't necessarily expect a personality fit challenge. Uh, I do think the corporate institutional fit 
it's always a challenge in these big, huge companies that have a lot of bureaucracy and it's very difficult to affect change because there are all these corporate antibodies that are designed to fight any change from the status quo um, versus a small entrepreneurial company, you know, that, that you know, uh, where leaders used to being able to make, um, you know, very quick decisions. I think it, you know, I think that could be the cultural challenge that Michael Dubin's going to have to face as he tries to bring uh, more digital savvy to Unilever is going to be more around that institutional change and less around personality fit. Yeah. Do you think, would you recommend Unilever kind of take this model and use it as a platform for other brands? So, you know, uh, attach some axe aftershave to the dollar shave club. And then maybe even some other, I don't know what other brand would there maybe mayonnaise or something. <laughs> um, you know, could, do you think they just take this subscription platform and apply it across their wide portfolio of brands? Or do you think it's just a separate entity that they is more of an, you know, a, a labs that they learn from and take some of the best practices into the other brands? No, I, I absolutely think that they want to leverage the platform uh, with some of the, the other Unilever brands. So I don't, I don't think we'll see every Unilever product in the, that subscription club, but I, I think there's a bunch of synergistic products that we'll, we'll see start to be available through the Dollar Shave Club. And, you know, frankly, the, at this point, the Dollar Shave Club is a big list of loyal customers. Uh, I, I certainly think Unilever will use that for marketing purposes and try to introduce other Unilever products to it. Um, but I also think they'll take that platform and try to recreate it for new audiences. So Unilever has a lot of product for women. Dollar Shave Club was really focused on a male audience. I think Michael Dubin would say a lot of women buy razors for their men, but, but you know, the subscribe, the end user was primarily men. Um, so it wouldn't shock me to see them take the, the software and business models from Dollar Shave Club and try to apply them to some other Unilever brands as well. Yeah, they could almost have like a super Unilever Prime kind of a program that's maybe a you know a, a superset of all these different things or something. Exactly, and I for one would be thrilled to see uh, Michael Dubin try to make a funny video about mayonnaise because I totally think he could do it. Yeah, yeah, I would watch that for sure. So, so if we think they're doing two hundred million, how many subscribers do you think they have? What what was it? A twenty dollar a month subscription. Yeah, uh, I think that's the order of magnitude. I will uh, get the crack research staff on the. I would admit get one of our one of our interns exactly. Turn something exactly, and that this is probably a good time to mention that we are taking submissions for new interns. Yeah, they don't stick around long. I don't understand. We'll have to talk about that some other time. Yeah, we're gonna have to stop uh, hiring ones that are in physical proximity to you. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So how about like uh, $6 a month for an average uh, blade program? Ooh, okay. All right. So if we have 200 million, let's make it 20 million a month just to kind of make the math easy. And divide by six. So that would be 3 million subscribers. Hmm. So. By my uh, my intern over here says three point three million subscribers to get to kind of that rate. So pretty interesting. Yeah, and I want to also mention it's amazing to me how good at math all of your interns always end up being. They have to. That's part of the the test to get in on this thing. Got you. That's probably why I never made it. (laughs) 
you're more of a right brain or is it left brain? I always get that confused. Yeah. I'm just happy to be associated with a brain at all. <laughs> cool. Well, let's, um, I think that's the, the gist of the dollar shave club thing. Uh, and let's talk about Walmart jet. This has been interesting. It's kind of a, almost a little anticlimactic because the news leaked last week and it was pretty, it was a pretty hard leak is basically, Hey, next week, Walmart's going to announce they're acquiring jet. Um, so, uh, before we dive in, I want to remind you that way back on episode eight, which was our 2016 predictions episode, where you made your prediction about CPTs, I made the prediction that my third prediction was, and I quote, Jet will prove all the naysayers wrong and be acquired. So this is one of those rare episodes where we were both right. So, you know, I guess, I guess with the span of two or three weeks here, we, we had a little lucky spell on our 2016 predictions. I love it. Great job, Scott. Yeah, so let, let me jump in with a little background on Jet. Uh, we're intimately familiar with these guys. I've known Mark Laurie for a long time from his Quidzy days, and um, that was the company that started this whole subscription e-commerce kind of thing with diapers.com, and they launched a whole bunch of other sites, but the parent company was Quidzy. That was acquired by Amazon for $545 million. Um, Then uh, they, after two years of being part of the Amazon machine, uh, Mark spun out and decided to start a new business called Jet. They started with kind of a membership model, so so kind of think Amazon Prime, but but a Jet Prime membership. Uh, and then three months after launch, they basically said, "Hey, to go even faster, we want to get rid of the membership model and just really focus on low prices and kind of a pure marketplace model." So the technology kind of foundation of Jet really what it does is it it tries to take cost out of the equation and pass them on to consumers. And that results in prices that are 15 to 20% lower than other places. So some of the things they do is they dynamically look for an item based on the, um, it's kind of a little bit of an RFP system, kind of like Priceline. So you don't really know exactly who you're buying from. So, so, sellers, quote unquote, sellers bid on the back end. Um, so that's one way they lower prices. Number two, they actually do look around and kind of say, all right, if the product is at point A and B and they're the same price, which one's closer to the buyer? And that will actually take cost out of the equation. They also offer uh, shoppers discounts the more they shop. So it, they incent higher basket rates. Um, they incent, uh, you can opt out of returns. That's my favorite part. You can, uh, you can get charged less if you use an ATM debit card versus credit card, things like that. So they've really kind of, because of their deep understanding of the cost of e-commerce, they've really aligned those with the buyer and aligned the buyer to get lower prices by, by changing certain behaviors. Like, uh, essentially the biggest one is larger cart size. And then the other one is on the back end is figuring out the dynamically, where to route the order uh, to get the lowest cost to ship the item. Uh, they, um, they're they a private company, and they don't disclose the revenue, but they did say in the fourth quarter they were at an $800 million run rate. And then as of this press release, as part of this announcement, it says they're at a billion-dollar GMV run rate. Now, some of that GMV, they did acquire Hayneedle in February for $90 million. Uh, And I believe, if I remember my IR500 right, Hayneedle was in kind of the $100, $150 million, uh, revenue rate. So that... They do have a fair amount of first party kind of GMV inside that billion. So I would say definitely the hay needle is first party. I think they were doing some sales themselves through warehouses and stuff. So I think you could call it 150 to 200 million of that one billion was first party. And then the other 800 would be more of a third party marketplace. Um, as part of this press release, they said they have 4 million shoppers. Um, and I, 
that that metric usually implies some kind of activity latency usually over a year. Uh, they also over-index for urban millennials, which is interesting. When I do go to big cities, I see Jet doing a lot of outdoor, but they don't really advertise much around where I am. Uh, let's see. They had raised uh, – Mark is very good at raising capital. They raised $500 million, 200 before they even launched, and then another 300 after launch. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I said it at the top, but they're really just a year old, so they just celebrated their one-year birthday kind of in July. Um and when they raised that last chunk of the $500 million, it was at a valuation to over $1.5 billion, and investors included Alibaba and Google. So there's been a lot of speculation that, you know, was there a bidding war and that kind of thing. So so that's uh, a bit of a background on Jet. Uh, do you want to take a quick background on Walmart.com? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Scott. Um, so, you know, Walmart uh, was a relatively early mover in e-commerce, but it was mostly insignificant. Uh, and they, you know, were frequently talked about falling way behind Amazon, even in the 2000s. Um, so until about 2011, it was pretty clear that Walmart wasn't taking e-commerce particularly seriously. And in 2011, Walmart acquired a internet startup company called Cosmics. And they, they, that was the first company that they rolled into what they've called Walmart Labs. And, Wal- and today Walmart Labs has evolved into Walmart Global E-Commerce. Um, and so that, uh, that, that first Cosmics acquisition was the first of, I think now about 24, 25 acquisitions that Walmart's made to bolster their e-commerce capabilities. They've, uh, invested billions of dollars each year in really, um, building unique competitive advantages into their platform, uh, and kind of moved away from a lot of the off the shelf tools. They've grown a team that I, you know, I think is over 5,000 people in the U.S. now. So they've become a really big e-commerce entity between 2011 and, and today. And during that time, they had a really good run. They went from, you know, insignificant e-commerce sales to today they're number four on the internet retailer list. Uh, last year they did about 13.7 billion in revenue. Um, and they, for the last, for most of this decade, they've actually been growing even faster than Amazon. So, you know, most people would look at that run from 2011 through 2017 and say, or 2016 rather, and say that, that Walmart had, had done a very good job, uh, certainly not of catching Amazon. Amazon probably was running even faster, but, uh, did a very good job of at least becoming relevant in digital commerce. And that would be a great story except for a couple things. Walmart sells $482 billion a year in their stores. So that $13 billion is a very big number in e-commerce, but it still only represents less than 3% of all Walmart sales, which is pretty light. Uh, you see a lot of other retailers in uh, in that kind of uh, five to ten percent of their sales in e-commerce, so it makes Walmart feel like they're not as big as they should be there. And they're while they're still growing in e-commerce, um, they've had marked slowing of that growth rate over the last three years. So three years ago, they were growing at thirty-one percent, which was actually faster than Amazon. Last year, they grew at twenty-one percent. Or I'm sorry, two years ago they grew at 21 percent, and then last year for the full year they only grew at 12 percent, which is actually slower than the average growth rate in e-commerce. So that was really alarming, both to Walmart management and to shareholders. And I want to say for the last quarter their e-commerce growth was only seven percent 
So, you know, again, one of the virtues of the e-commerce industry is where all these numbers are growth, which, you know, growth is certainly a good thing. But 7% growth in a market where, you know, the average growth is 15% and your traditional competitors like Target are putting up numbers like 25 or 30% and Amazon is putting up those 25 or 30% growth numbers. Um, it was really starting to feel like, like Amazon or Walmart's initial growth from that Walmart Labs, uh, jumpstart was starting to peter out. Yeah, and then um, the deal that was announced today, here's kind of the highlights. So it's a $3.3 billion deal that makes it the largest deal ever in e-commerce. $3 billion of that is just straight out cash. And then $300 million is in stock, which I imagine is some kind of a retention, kind of a keep the employees around kind of thing. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is this is uh, there's also an aqua hire part of this. So Mark Laurie, you, you got to imagine that he's got some kind of a you know lock-in around this deal because he's going to be running Walmart.com. And uh, it's been reported in the New York Times or Bloomberg, I saw it, that Neil Ash, who was previously kind of the GM of .com, is, is leaving the company. Um, then I just saw earlier tonight that, that Lori told Recode, Jason over at Recode, that it actually wasn't really a competitive process. So, uh, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt that Google and maybe Alibaba were kind of bidding in this, uh, kind of the, the crew that's anti Amazon. And it ended up that Mark said, nope, it was just a deal between uh, us and Walmart. And he's had a relationship with Doug for a while. And they just felt like it was a great combination to, uh, he mentioned a lot about, you know, number one, ad scale, uh, because Walmart does have a lot of customers. Uh, and then number two, in the same article, he said that, you know, Jet's spending a good 20 to $25 million in spend a month uh, just to acquire customers. And you could imagine Walmart has a lot of customers, which would give them a platform for really getting in front of a lot more people than they're able to on their own. So those are the highlights of the deal points. Uh, I think that's everything. Yep. Uh, so Jason, what do you make of this deal? Yeah. So I think on paper, it's a, uh a very smart deal. We're, we'll talk about the valuation in a second, but but just in general, you take this jet model, which you did a great job of describing it. I I try to um, my sort of elevator explanation to folks is um, that Amazon has a really complex uh, ecosystem for delivering products to you, and they make all the decisions for you. So there, all those decisions are transparent to you, and Amazon tends to make a lot of those decisions to get the goods to you as quickly as possible. And uh, Jet sees that as an opportunity and says, hey, we're going to expose more of those decisions to you, let the customer be in charge, and decide uh, when they want to expedite delivery versus get things a little slower or a little less conveniently uh, to save money. So they put a lot more of the power in the hands of the customer uh, to, to potentially save money and make different value equations than the ones that Amazon tends to make for its customers. So taking that business model and exposing it to the 300 million people that shop at Walmart um, seems like uh, it has a lot of upside to it. So I think you take the jet model and you pour all those Walmart customers into it, that seems really appealing. You mentioned Jet historically has had to pay a huge price for customer acquisition. Walmart will be able to get customers a lot less, a lot more cost effectively. So, so that's exciting. Uh, I think another challenge for Jet was recruiting all of the brands that they wanted to carry and having the the full assortment of products that shoppers want to buy. 
Um, because Walmart sells almost $400 billion in stores, every brand in the world wants to sell product through those stores. So Walmart has a ton more leverage to acquire all those brands and get them in the system. So I think Walmart will be able to help Jet uh, have a broader assortment. Um, and so I think that's all super favorable. The magic question is, did Walmart pay the right price for all of that goodness? Yeah, yeah, that kind of brings me to two perspectives. Number one is the investor perspective. So, um, you know, what, what's interesting is a lot of the business press has been very negative about this deal, especially on the jet team saying, you know, gosh, it's a failure. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I'll take a 3.3 billion failure any day of the week. I, I guess, you know, I guess people's expectations for you know, when you say you're going to take on Amazon, I think they must think that you're going to be a hundred billion or 10, 20 billion or something like that. So I think they view it as kind of a, you know, a failure that he's not, going to continue to take on Amazon. But if you can partner with, you know, I, I forget what you say, IR4, if you can, if you can take on the number four largest, you know, if you can partner with the fourth largest retailer to go kind of take on somebody, that's a good partner to have. So, so I, I think, I think that angle on this is really wrong. And I think as an entrepreneur, Mark is, is awesome. And uh, he's obviously in this whole different league than I am. So I have, uh, you know, many kudos for what he's been able to do, twice now, which is pretty amazing. Um, just to give it some perspective, uh, the initial investors, I think they got in at a 150 pre. I've seen some articles in some of the venture publications about that. And they invested 200 million. So so that's already kind of a, so that gives you kind of like a 300 million post money valuation on that. So those folks got easily a 10X out of this, assuming there's standard terms in there. Um, you know, so, so I think it's crazy to view this as a failure from an investor standpoint. Now, is it a fair price? It, it's hard to say. There's not a lot of comps out there. You know, is you know, you've got a you've got a business that it's hard to know what its year year growth rate is because it's effectively infinite because it went from zero to a billion in GMV. Not many businesses I'm familiar with have ever come close to that growth rate. So, yeah, you know, sure they burned a lot to get there, but but even then, other companies have burned a lot and not gotten there. Like um, Fab.com, I think they burned three or four hundred million and never got even over. 200 million in revenue, something like that. Um, so, you know, there, there is a there there and, you know, it's hard to price something like that. I, I think we won't know if they paid or overpaid until we see what this looks like in kind of five years and we see what the integration is and, and what is it, what does the jet model do to the Walmart model? Does it, can Walmart take it to 5 billion in a, you know, in the next year and then 10, that would be pretty interesting. You know, what if that became kind of, more than half of of Walmart's sales in the next two or three or four years, so so I think I think it's really hard to call on that perspective. The other perspective I've gotten asked a lot about is from the seller perspective, and you know when I say seller, I mean uh, the sellers that are selling on Walmart and Jet. And most people, when you say seller, they kind of think of a SMB retail kind of a person, and, and certainly there's some of that. But we're seeing more and more brands sell on these sites. And I think it's interesting because what we found is a lot of brands are really intrigued by Jet, and they they want to go direct. They don't have a great partner. The challenge with um, with Amazon is they're they're it's really complicated because they're a retail partner, and that makes it hard for them to be more of a marketplace partner. So so Amazon's kind of a convoluted Gordian knot for brands to figure out. Uh, eBay and the Walmart marketplace, they both have negative connotations. eBay, because it's kind of viewed as, quote unquote, a flea market, and Walmart's viewed as a discounter. So a lot of brands don't want to be associated with that. So then 
Jet ends up being this really kind of nice new independent brand that's very friendly towards brands, um, and it doesn't have kind of the negative stigma. So, so I do think what that says to me is, and, and they've they've come out and said this a couple times that both brands, both of the um, I'm using the word brands here a lot, both Jet and Jet.com and Walmart.com will be around as front ends. So, so I do think there's this interesting chance here for Walmart to have a secondary kind of a store, if you will. That, that has a bit of a clean slate and allows them to experiment with some things and carry a whole nother set of products that are not available on Walmart. Um, so you could have high end audio or, you know, a whole, you know, maybe more high end TVs or, uh, I don't know, you know, products that you normally wouldn't think of being associated with Walmart. And, and that's kind of an interesting thing. And I think Walmart needs that to compete with Amazon as well. Um, the one thing I do think, so, so if you're a seller, I think this is good. I think both brands will be around. There's probably gonna be some complexity kind of managing the two and figuring out, you know, what if some jets products start to show up on Walmart and back and forth. So you have to, a lot of these things seem like they're gonna get simpler. You're like, Oh, these two things become one. But what we found is when this happens, it actually the complexity goes up. So I imagine there'll be a bunch of complexity. Maybe they'll introduce an FBA like component, which would, would add a bunch of complexity. Um, so so I think for sellers, I think this is a positive. You've got now a uh, hopefully a little bit more balance on the scales uh, to counteract Amazon's kind of ascendancy. Uh, the one I do worry about a little bit is eBay is kind of you know just kind of getting their sea legs with a new management team and being spun off from PayPal, starting to see some green shoots there. And then now they've you know in addition to having Amazon as a, a pretty uh, you know, very large competitor that's growing really rapidly, they're going to have kind of a newly refreshed Walmart slash jet that they're going to be competing with. And, and I think that that could be a negative on eBay. So, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like even before this acquisition, there were a lot of signs that Walmart was reinvesting in marketplace and looking to reinvigorate that. And so, you know, now you accelerate that with a $3 billion investment. Um, and, you know, at the very least uh, it's, it's a clear indication that the Walmart thinks, marketplaces are an important part of the future of digital commerce. Yeah, they've been really kind of pushing the marketplace really hard at our Catalyst event. Uh, we announced that we're partnering with them, and they've, they've been on a seller acquisition spree here um, that's been super aggressive. Yep. And don't you think that, you know, part of the, the JET model is to take all that complexity in the supply chain and turn it into a better value for consumers. You merge all the, the, the marketplace supply chain that Jet had built with the fulfillment centers that Walmart owns, and you have a more complex uh, supply chain. And so it seems like there's even more complexity there that you then can uh, offer uh, more options to customers to save more money, depending on how they're willing to take delivery and bundle products and all those sorts of things. So it seems like that it it takes the Jet model and accelerates it in a bunch of ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to ask you is what do you think, um, you know, so Walmart's kind of hidden asset, as it were, is the stores, you know, they have, what do they have, over 3,000 stores. So you think there's some kind of a store omni-channel angle, like maybe they apply the jet engine to every kind of store as a fulfillment center or something like that? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of interesting angles there. So Walmart has like 4,000 of what they would call super centers, which are what most of us think of when we think of a Walmart. Um, And they have quite a few... uh, smaller footprint grocery stores called Walmart neighborhood markets as well. And so like the super simple thing you, you can think uh, uh, you can expect to see is if you've walked in a Walmart super center in the last six months, 
they are strongly messaging e-commerce and buy online pickup in store in those in those stores. There's signage everywhere talking about the value prop of going to walmart.com and ordering product and picking it up in the store. And so if they were to, you know, in their next signage cycle replace a lot of that signage with with signage pushing people to jet, that would probably be way more effective at driving customers to jet than all of the expensive advertising jet has bought. And it would be way more cost effective because remember, Walmart's got 145 million shoppers that walk in the doors of those stores every week. So they have a huge audience to advertise to with really cost effective signage and messaging in all the stores. So to me, the, the first thing that we can expect to see is them leveraging that store traffic to introduce people to jet. And then to your point, there's a bunch of new interesting models that come up. Um, the jet didn't have a pickup a local pickup option, right? Like, so they were a lot of the complexity in the supply chain for jet was where the goods are coming from. But now with Walmart, you have two ends of that complexity where the goods are coming from and where are you going to pick it up? And would you be willing to aggregate orders at a store over some period of time before you pick them up? Um, you could imagine Walmart adding buy online pickup in store to the jet model, which could be super interesting. I would also remind listeners that Walmart has pretty successfully launched its own mobile wallet. So they have this Walmart Pay system, which is a use your smartphone to purchase goods in store or online. And they've now deployed that to all 5,000 of their stores. So I, I haven't seen them disclose any numbers on how effective adoption has been, but I would imagine that they'll be aggressively marketing the Walmart pay system to all the existing jet customers and uh, marketing jet to all the Walmart pay customers. So that could be another interesting nuance in here. And, you know, jet already offers you an, an incentive to pay with a debit card. You, you could imagine them offering an incentive to use Walmart pay as well. Yeah, there's probably also a shipping pass integration where maybe you, you know, you get normal jet kind of three to four day delivery. And then if you're a shipping pass customer, you get two day delivery or something like that. that that's a great point. And just to remind listeners, shipping pass is Walmart's version of a, a, a shipping club similar to Amazon Prime. It's free two day shipping for $50 a year. So, Scott, what do you think Amazon is going to do in reaction to this news? That's a that's a good question. A lot of reporters have been kind of asking about that, and um, so so knowing Amazon for for quite a while, uh, they really don't pay attention to this stuff. I know it's hard to believe, but they they're they're so busy kind of focusing on the customer and scaling things uh, that I don't think they really change much here. So so just to give you an idea, they announced their second quarter results. We haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show, but. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of acceleration in the business. Third party accelerated, first party accelerated. Same, um, uh, so paid items accelerated to like twenty six, twenty seven percent. The the Amazon business is very healthy, and if anything, they're struggling with just keeping the infrastructure growing fast enough. So since they this year in the U.S. alone, they've announced eighteen fulfillment centers, and I believe they're going to try to get all those online for fourth quarter. Uh, so they are building out fulfillment centers at this kind of torrid pace. Uh, and my, uh, I don't track Walmart's as closely, but I think they have seven or eight fulfillment centers. So, so Amazon just this year is going to build like two to three X the fulfillment centers that Walmart has. So they're really kind of playing 
they're playing 3D chess and, you know, Walmart's kind of, you know, really catching up here. Uh, um, and you know, I don't think Amazon really slows down or, or changes their strategy in any way to react on this. That being said, one of the interesting kind of stress relievers that Amazon has because their fulfillment centers are so full and Prime is so popular is um, FBA is essentially full and they're turning away a lot of products. So what they're starting to do is uh, – it used to call, be called Merchant Fulfilled Prime Eligible and now they just call it Seller Fulfilled Prime or SFP. They The first iteration of SFP was if you were a seller on Amazon and you could commit to the Prime promise for everything, then they would let you sell on Amazon without being in the fulfillment centers and your product would be marked as Prime. And they would carefully watch to make sure everything got there within two days. Sellers liked that, but they complained and said, number one, I can't do this for all my products because if I am a golf seller and I have, I can do it for golf balls and some accessories, but I can't do it for clubs and bags. So, so in the second iteration of that program, Amazon let people selectively put things in and out of seller fulfilled prime, which, which was well received. And then the other thing is sellers said, I really can only, if I'm an East Coast or West Coast seller, I want to kind of give you zones, UPS zones effectively, where I can do the two-day. And then I want you, if the buyer is in those zones, go ahead and show it as prime eligible. And if not, don't show it as prime eligible. Well, that ends up looking a lot like kind of the jet dynamic pricing engine at the end of the day. Because what happens is the buyer goes on Amazon, and there could be two sellers. And if we kind of say same skew, same price, but an East Coast seller and a West Coast seller, and you're in Chicago, they'll probably fulfill from the East Coast seller because they're a little bit closer to you. So they'll actually do that dynamic pricing and show you the buy box for the seller that's closest to you. And then that order would be routed to them, which ends up looking a lot like Jet. So in, a, in many ways, you know, I, I think Amazon has maybe even kind of caught up to that jet innovation in a way. Uh, now, Amazon's not doing kind of um, any of the cart expansion stuff. So this is one of the things I think Mark really knows well from being inside of Amazon is a lot of the prime boxes come with one item per box. And, you know, that that's the most inefficient way to do these things. Uh, I think Amazon kind of looks at it and says, we don't care, we'll lose money on that. And we'll just get the product closer and closer with even prime now kind of, you know, right next to you and that will that's how they'll solve the problem is is getting rid of the shipping cost uh and i think what mark's thinking is no i don't think you can do that i think you get more things in the box so there still are some jet innovations there but i think i do think one of the core ones this kind of dynamic pricing based on the location of the product amazon has covered probably 80 to 90 percent of that Hmm. that's a totally interesting perspective i totally agree with you that this acquisition uh, affects Amazon less than almost anyone else. Um, But I do think if you're uh, certainly eBay, but also any of Walmart's traditional competitors, the second largest retailer behind Walmart is Costco. Um, And that, you know, you think about the targets and the staples and the, the Macy's of the world, the, uh, I think they're all more are likely to to be talking about this acquisition this week and thinking about what they're going to do to stay up because the, the thing that Mark Laurie has consistently said since he first started Jet, which I totally agree with, is this is not a winner-take-all market. You don't have to beat Amazon to be a very profitable, successful business. And I don't think we're ever going to get to a world where 100% of all goods are delivered via e-commerce. So I think the Walmart stores are always going to be important and always move a lot of volume and revenue. 
Walmart doesn't have to catch Amazon digitally. They just have to be really good at digital and make sure they can serve all their customers digitally. And it's moves like this that potentially put them in a, in a position to do that. And if I'm, you know, Costco and I'm in a knife fight with, with Walmart for brick and mortar customers, uh, you know, Walmart was probably already digitally ahead of Costco, and this is another big leap forward for them. So it, I think those are the kind of retailers that, you know, should really be nervous and should be thinking about how they're going to react to this news. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think we will see this kind of um, both just kind of put a bow on it, the Dollar Shave Club acquisition and this acquisition. Uh, you know, I, I think these are dominoes that are falling and we're going to see more dominoes fall. And uh, usually in our world, it really heats up in towards the end of the third quarter, because if you're going to do something, you kind of need to do it by October. So it's going to be interesting to watch. I think we'll see many more kind of acquisitions and big strategic moves kind of coming here in, in the next two or three months. Yeah. One other question on that, Scott. Um, you know the investment community a lot better than I do. I kind of imagine that these acquisitions could potentially start freeing up more venture capital to invest in new e-commerce businesses. Because from my perspective, it feels like you talk to the the VCs a year ago and there there weren't a lot of good, quote unquote, e-commerce exits. And so, you know, people weren't really excited about putting money into businesses now, you know, just in one month period, we've got two really good stories. Is that potentially going to renew interest in uh, investing in new novel e-commerce businesses, do you think? Maybe. I think you have to parse that a little bit. I, I don't think kind of if you came up and said, hey, I'm going to be a new retailer, I, I don't think that business is exciting. Or if you were a flash sale or subscription, I think I think those ships have sailed. But if you can, you know, the the models that I think venture capitalists are going to love because of these acquisitions are the DNVB space. So I, I think there's going to be a lot more of those coming. Uh, there are a lot of them out there. Um, I'm big on the on-demand space, uh, as listeners will know. I think that kind of heats up because I view them as the same things as digital native vertical brands, but with a service component versus a product. And I think it's hard to be Amazoned when you're a service, and it's easier to be Amazoned when you're a product. Um, and uh, you know, I do think these marketplace models are are very attractive. Now, you know, there's the scale. I, the jet one's hard to replicate because you have this unique founder where there's maybe three or four other people in e-commerce that could pull that off. Uh, and most of them are otherwise engaged on things. So, so I think that one's going to be hard to find someone that can kind of come out and say, I'm going to go head to head with Amazon and raise $500 million and build a $10 billion business. That that's just kind of a rarity because of the, you know, the, the sample set of entrepreneurs that can kind of say that with credibility is pretty small. Um, and you know, to your point, the investment in e-commerce, uh, as defined by some of these these folks that track this stuff, like there's a, a classic one called CB Insights, uh, and they they put out a quarterly report, and e-commerce is at all time lows. You know, I think it's something like ten billion in the last year has been invested in various e-commerce companies, um, which, which seems like a lot, but that's actually down by like fifty percent from two years prior. So there's definitely kind of you know. The, the venture capitalists have moved on to other models that are out there. Um, there's lots of money going into all kinds of different industries. So uh, it, it is tight. Very interesting. Uh, so you've depressed me a little bit. I was hoping maybe that uh, that this would mean there's some extra cash out there for some new innovative businesses. And it sounds like what you're saying is potentially there is if they're innovative, but certainly not for the the sort of traditional models that everyone's familiar with. Yeah. 
Um, so I did notice two other sort of uh, real quick tidbits on Amazon this year uh, week that we should probably mention before we wrap up the show. I saw a airplane with a cool Amazon Prime Air paint job up in uh, Seattle this week. Did you see that news? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of my predictions of going back to our January podcast was that Amazon would invest heavily in logistics infrastructure and they have leased, I think they announced 10 planes and they announced another 20. So something like 30 or 40 planes. And um, so that they don't own these planes, they don't quote unquote own them, but they're leasing them. And, you know, if if you've got planes, if you've got 30 or 40 planes zipping around, uh, it makes sense to put your brand on there. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, that that's pretty cool. It says Amazon Prime Air, which was previously what they branded the drones. So it's kind of interesting that they've been thinking about this for a while. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool. The, you know, it looks really nice on the jet. It's on, on underneath the bottom of the jet. It, it says Amazon Prime Air. So if you happen to be at a baseball game and look up, you'll get a kind of a prime ad thrown at you there. Um you know, there's when these images came out, everyone freaked out and said, "Oh my God, it looks like a FedEx or a UPS plane." And I think if if you're just kind of waking up to the possibility that Amazon may compete with those guys, you haven't been listening to the podcast. I think that you know, it's uh, I believe at least it's a near certainty, and many folks on Wall Street believe that there will be a day when you know, uh, at some level, Amazon either even if it's just their own product delivery, that there's there's more and more kind of overlap with them and FedEx and UPS, and, and I think seeing that plane made it very visceral for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I think a missed opportunity, I quickly went on Amazon to see if I could buy a model version of the Amazon uh, Prime Air jet, and sadly, I could not buy one. Mm, that could be our next business. Yeah, If I this think- podcasting thing doesn't work out, we'll, uh, we'll sell Amazon Prime Air model jets. We'll have to call Jeff and see if we can get the, the license to that. Yeah, I, I will leave that one in your court uh, since you delegate so much to me. Um, and then the, the other piece of news from Amazon, we've done a couple shows on the, the ever expanding assortment of Amazon's private label. Uh, this week I saw they introduced a new brand, uh, that sounded very near and dear to my heart. It was called Happy Belly. And that is private label food. Uh, at the moment, it's specifically, uh, roasted nuts. So like, you know, mixed nuts packages and roasted almonds and, cashews and a couple of granola mixes. So I, I have ordered an assortment of Happy Belly products uh, that we'll be serving at uh, shop.org this year. Cool. Well, with that, Scott, we should probably wrap up uh, this episode. Hopefully everyone has found it useful to, uh, to get a little bit of our insight into the, the impact of some of these recent acquisitions. This episode was sponsored by NRF. Jason and I are going to be doing some live podcasting at the Digital Summit 2016, which is going to be in Dallas, Texas, September 26th to 28th. And we have a discount code that will save you 10%. And that code is Jason ampersand Scott, S-C-O-T. And we that will waive 10% off your full conference fee. If you visit our show notes, you'll find a link to that or go to retailsdigitalsummit.nrf.com. Enter the code when you register and we look forward to seeing you there. And with that, I'll wish, wish all the listeners happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 